you catch those lyrics? I'm guessing you did. You probably know that song. Beatles, obviously one of the most popular bands. By the way, I just found out that they, uh, their music is released on iTunes this week. So all you iTunes fans can go buy your stuff now. Um, anyway, blackbird singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly. You're just waiting for this moment to arise. You know, what you just experienced right there is what we're talking about today, the discovery of being. Someone who's doing exactly what God intended them to do, the way they were intended to do it. I was listening to the radio this week. It was like internet radio. And as I was uh, listening, I heard that song. And then right after, it was like Beatles radio or something. And right after that song, another Beatles song, Something in the Way She Moves came on. I thought to myself immediately, yeah, you know, that's exactly right. When you see someone that can dance like that, doing that, you think, yeah, there is something in the way she moves. Something special and unique. If I did try to do that, you would say the same thing. <laughs> but you would mean something different. Because I'm not really created to do that. There's stuff that I am created to do, but it's not that. It's just amazing to watch someone who can dance like that. It's so natural and, and fluid and graceful. It's just a great expression of who she is and who she's created to be operating in her completion. She's made for it, and it's exceptional. It's not stereotypic at all. You, you, wouldn't, you would never stereotype, you know, stereotype all of people as great dancers like that. It's interesting. Um, in, in the animal kingdom, there's a term that they use. It's called stereotypic movement or stereotypical behavior. And this term is used to describe what happens when you take animals that are born in the wild and you put them in captivity like zoos. And I'm not telling you this uh, because I have a stand on whether we should be doing that or not. I'm just telling you this as an example. But what happens is when they put these animals in captivity, what happens to them is they develop these stereotypic behaviors. Now, stereotypic behaviors develop across a species and it never exists outside of captivity. So for instance... Uh, bears developed this pattern of pacing figure eights back and forth by the gate. Lions, who are predators and they hunt for their food, develop this weird ritual before feeding time. And they're kind of waiting for their food to come. It's a stereotypic behavior that happens because who they are meant to be is put into captivity. It's like a limp that develops as a result. But I also believe that that's true of humans. That when we're not living the life that we are fully intended to live, we start developing limps and stereotypic behaviors because we've put our being into captivity. You know, I'm here to tell you today that none of us, no one in this room and no one in this world was created to be stereotypical. No one. And no one who's ever changed the world No one who's changed the world would be people who you'd stereotype their life as stereotypical, vanilla, same as everyone else. When you look at the lives of people who change the world, you realize that there's nothing about their life that's stereotypical. It's very unique and exceptional. And what I think the difference is that they refuse to let their beings be put into captivity. So I did a little search on Google to see, like, who, who are the people that are, who are the world changers? You know, who, let's see what comes up. And I just, I wrote a bunch of them down. I could have kept writing and writing. It's amazing how many people have lived these exceptional lives. But listen to this list. 
Amelia Earhart, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther, who led the Reformation, Martin Luther King Jr., the Dalai Lama, Albert Einstein, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Michelangelo, Karl Marx, Hitler, Jesus, Lekwalesa, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Jacques Cousteau, Osama bin Laden, even Apple computers. I always talk about Apple computers. You remember what their slogan was, though? Think <laughs> different. Yes, <laughs> Apple, Apple users know that. Think different. She didn't say think like everyone else. Think different. And it's because of that strategy that they're on top. Even Bill Gates, who I'm, you know, I'm a Mac guy, but I've got to give props where props are due. Even Bill Gates, he pioneered Windows. He pioneered all, all the, you know, without him, the world would be a different place because they were who they were meant to be. I want to ask all of you sitting here today, and, and um, I'm not just talking to the middle-aged people here. I'm talking to you kids <laughs> that are in middle school, I'm talking to grandparents, talking to everyone in between. I want to ask you this question. I want everyone to consider this. Are you living the kind of life that's focused on fitting in like Punchinello was in that book? Or are you focused on being the unique unique expression of who God created you to be? Are you more concerned about your dots and stars or more concerned about what Eli thinks about you? Do you ever feel like your life has started to develop stereotypical behaviors? Like these limps? I don't really like them, you know? They happen on a lot of levels. Like one is like watching TV at night because you're bored or whatever, you know, like stuff like that. But I'm talking on a bigger picture. Do you feel like your life is starting to develop these stereotypical limps just like everyone else, nothing exceptional or unique about you? Today we're looking at one of K2's 10 values, and that value is the discovery of being a unique expression of God in this time and place. It's really interesting. You, you know, some people, like you look at jobs that people do, and um, some people can make a lot of money, right? And, and uh, you think about this guy, he's making tons of money, but he's sitting in a cubicle by himself all day, not interacting with everyone, and he hates it. He can't stand the job he wants to get out. Do you think that that might be because he's an extrovert? Or have you ever met someone who a uh, great person and then they start dating someone else and all of a sudden they're not that great person anymore because they're not really free to be who they were meant to be? Or how about the person who's not really making much money at their job but they're happy as could be? Could that be because they're doing exactly what they were designed to do? I believe it is. See, what's a marvelous job for some people is actually the bane of the existence for others. Because square pegs don't fit in round holes unless you're willing to do a lot of damage to the peg and the hole. You can make it fit, right? just doesn't end up being so great. And what I want to do today is take the remaining time to examine this value, the discovery of being a unique expression of God in this time and place. I want to look at this. And immediately when I think about that, I just want to focus on a few things. It says, in this time and place, which means what? current, right? It's, it's active. It's not a passive existence. It's here and now. See, when you live in the past, that's not active. When I live for the future, I'm waiting for something to happen and I miss the moment that I'm in. And I miss an opportunity to be that expression. If all you have is what used to be, what's the point? 
There's no point. In the end, people, I believe, regret a whole lot more the things that they did not do than the things they did. And I also believe that regret is one of those stereotypical behaviors or those limps that we develop as a result of our being being put into captivity. Three things, just the discovery of being a unique expression of God in this time of place. It's real simple. I mean, these words are not crazy hard, difficult to understand words. Discovery, what is that? Ongoing new information, finding out new things. About what? About your being. Well, what's your being? Your being is your, your essential character in nature. Discovering more about yourself. But what about yourself? Discovering your uniqueness. How are you different from others in a way that's worth noting? And the purpose of this is what? To be an expression of God. Continue to discover who you are in your nature, how that's different from others, and how you can express that in this time and place for others and be God's expression. You know, the key, for me, um, what, the key difference, or a key difference at least, for me in the Christian faith from all other faiths, one very key difference is this, the way we look at desires. Um, I, so many other faiths encourage you to, to suppress your desires. They, they encourage you to you know, eliminate or ignore your desires. Actually have no desires is one faith. But that's not what the Christian faith is about. See, desires are good. Desires are God-given. They're not bad. God's word has actually quite a bit to say about this. I want to look at just a few passages here in our time this morning and uh, invite you to join me here. Psalm, uh, which the Psalms were uh, written by David and, and he, all three, I'm going to share with you three psalms and, and uh, three verses from psalms that I'd, I'd love you to consider. The first one is in uh, chapter 139, verse 13. And it says this. This is David writing He's, again. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So you created me. And then he goes on to say, And all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. You created my inmost being. What is your inmost being? What is that? It's your guts, right? Your organs? Mm-hmm. That's part of it. See, so what your inmost being is, your being is your essential nature and character. That's the definition. God created your very nature and character, which includes your desires, your wants, your dislikes, your likes. So if God created those for you, how could they be wrong? Well, they are not. Desires are good. And then it even says in this passage in verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book. So he says all the days that are planned out with a blessing for you, not just in general, for you specifically because of the way you're created. I have a specific purpose for you because of the way you're created differently from others. Look at Psalm chapter 20, verse 4. This is David praying a blessing. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Not may you suppress your desires to the point that God is pleased with you. Not may you, may you eliminate all desires so that you can be one with the universe. No, may you, God give you the desires that you have. So it's God's desire 
that our desires are met. Then he goes in, in, in chapter 37 of Psalms, he says this. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, I say this and there's plenty more verses we could talk about. But I say this because I want you to understand your desires are not wrong. In fact, they are good God-given things that you should not let go of. You should lean into them. It's not the desire that produces sin. It's the corruption of our desires. That's where it goes bad. And that is what needs redemption. See, sexual desires, it's a normal, natural thing. We have sexual desires. It's when we pervert that and we get into you know, sex slave trafficking, trafficking or our desire to eat is good. You don't eat, you die. Gluttony is not so good. Desire to provide is a good thing. Workaholism, not a good thing. See, what happens is when we take God's given desires and we pervert them or corrupt them, that's when the problem begins. But the desires in the right context are just great. For every one of us here today, the discovery of being a unique expression of God in this time and place will always include three things. You might want to write these down. The first is this, your uniqueness, your gifts, your talents, your, your being. The first thing is this, it, your uniqueness. The second thing is God's timing. And the third thing is your willingness to step out of your comfort zone. I love to look at a story uh, that for me, I believe, really presents a crystal clear uh, example of this uh, value in action. And it's found in Esther. In, um, it's an Old Testament book. And uh, it, this, this takes place between about, 400 and, about 500 and 450 B.C. Um, and uh, enter, enter the, the, the heroine here, Esther. She's a little girl. And her parents die uh, as a little girl. Enter hero number two, Uncle Mordecai. Now, he's a much older uncle. And um, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Here's what happens. Mordecai adopts. And again, if you are here a few weeks ago and we talked about adoption, you know my heart on adoption, but I believe that's God's heart. And what happens is Mordecai embraces the heart of God and says, I'm going to adopt her and raise her as my own. So he does what? His timing, he's in a place and a time when God puts him in a place to actually adopt. Steps out of his comfort zone. We don't know if he has another, we don't even know if he has a wife. We don't know anything about any other children. All we know is that he adopts and raises Esther as his own. And as a result, uh, actually changes the course of history. So he adopts her and raises her. We fast forward a little bit. And, and now what's happening in, in this book uh, is that um, the Jews have been scattered. They've been, they've been, play, uh, you know, they've been removed from their, displaced from their homeland. And they're living uh, all, all around. And as they're living, uh, a lot of them find themselves living in Persia. Okay? And that's where this story play, takes place. Mordecai and Esther are living in Persia. And um, the king is Xerxes. Just a little perspective on Xerxes here, okay? So how many of you guys saw 300? That movie, okay? It was rated R, you shouldn't have. All right, so, um, and I I just heard about it. But anyway, um, 
if you saw that movie, if you saw that movie, the king of Persia was Xerxes. That's who we're talking about here. And you see Hollywood's presentation of who Xerxes was, okay? Now, you may not agree fully with that. Sometimes Hollywood tends to embellish, but that was Xerxes. And in, and in this movie, Xerxes is the guy who leads the Persians to come and fight against uh, Leonidas, the leader of the Spartans. And I'm not going to tell you how it ends. Uh, if you haven't seen that movie, and you're going to see it, I don't want to ruin it for you. But he, what we know about Xerxes is that he is a relentless military campaigner. He's, he is a very, very, very strong force. But we also know that he's a boisterous man. He's got emotional, very, very, very emotional extremes. Okay? And that part came through in the movie, if you saw it. Well, what happens is he starts planning a military campaign against Greece. Okay? And part of what he would do when he would plan these military campaigns, he would have parties. So... Uh, in the planning of this party, he's, uh, in the planning of this military campaign, he launches a party. And this party, here's a little bit of his emotional extreme, lasts for six months. I've been to some good parties. None of them lasted that long. But for him, what happens during this party, he has a bit to drink. He ends up getting drunk. And so he decides his queen, Vashti, who's this beautiful, beautiful woman, most beautiful in the land. It's probably why she's queen. He, he decides, he, he thinks this is a good idea. So he sends someone to go get Queen Vashti and have her come and parade around in her crown. Many believe just her crown, but regardless, in front of all the men so they can see her beauty. He thinks that's a good idea. Well, she doesn't agree with that thinking. And so she says, I'm not going to do it. Well, this causes a problem because now he's publicly embarrassed. So he talks to his advisors and they say, well, what you have to do is you have to banish her. Because if you don't, women will start having opinions and they'll say no to their husbands and stuff. So you've got to do this. He says, all right. So he makes this decree. He banishes her from the land. And then he gets sober. Oops. <laughs> he realizes what a bad series of decisions he's, he's made. And he actually starts pining away and missing her and thinking, man, she is really beautiful. So he can't be without a beautiful queen. So he want, launches... Persia's next top model kind of deal to try and find the most beautiful woman in the land. And uh, there's a lot more that goes in the story, but what ends up happening is Esther, this adopted child raised by her uncle, who is Jewish, becomes the queen. Problem is she's Jewish, and he doesn't know. At any rate, uh, as Mordecai, her uncle dad, works in the palace with Xerxes, and he discovers a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And so he goes to Esther and he says, Esther, you've got to get news to the king that, that they're trying to assassinate him. So she does, and, and uh, the king checks it out, and he realizes, yeah, this is true. He says, thank you so much. He says, well, I didn't do what Mordecai did. She gives credit where credit's due, and Mordecai gets a promotion, and the king is saved. And uh, enter the villain, Haman. Not long after this happens, Haman, who is another official, high-ranking official in Xerxes' uh, fleet, gets a promotion, a real big substantial promotion. He, as a matter of fact, he's promoted to the second in command. Only Xerxes outranks him. And then Haman. And this guy was a little bit of an egomaniac, okay? And so what happens is a decree goes out that when 
when uh, Haman walks past, you bow because he's that great. But you see, the Jews didn't really have to follow the Persian laws. And Mordecai says, no, I'm doing that. And Haman walks past. Mordecai does not bow. And Haman becomes pretty enraged. He, he feels disrespected because he's great. He's better than everyone else. And so what happens is he decides, well, number one, I'm going to have, I'm going to devise a plot where Mordecai is going to die. So he goes and he builds these gallows in his own yard where Haman, where Haman is going to hang Mordecai. Well, that's not enough vengeance for him. He decides that actually what he wants to do is obliterate all the Jews. Pre-Hitler, first strike here. He's going to eliminate all the Jews. And so he goes to the king and he pitches this plan as, as to how the Jews aren't really following the laws and it's going to be better for the king if he just gets rid of them all. And so the king goes, okay, I'll do it. And he signs it. Mordecai gets news of this plot and goes immediately into mourning. Now, I think we'd, if we knew we were going to die, we all would. But what actually Mordecai starts mourning about isn't his own death. It's the obliteration of his people. And so he talks with Esther, the queen. And he tells her, you, you, you've, got, you've got to go to the king and talk to him. And she says, well, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty risky. Because, see, the megalomaniac Xerxes, <laughs> he sort of has a reputation that if you go into his presence without being invited, without having an appointment, and he doesn't feel like talking to you, he kills you. Fair enough, right? So she's trying to decide, if I go, I could die. And Haman's like, or uh, I'm sorry, Mordecai says, you're going to die one way or another, right? And we come across this verse in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. And it says this. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther. For if you remain silent at a time, at this time, Relief and de- deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. Let's stop there for a second. I want you to understand something about God that I think is essential. He doesn't say, if you don't do it, God's kind of hosed. He doesn't say, without you, God's useless. He says, without you, someone else is going to do it. See, and I think, again, if I'm living in the past or if I'm living in fear or waiting for the future or looking for someone else to accomplish God's will, I'm not living and being the expression of God in this time and place. Guess what? I miss my opportunity. And that's what Haman says to her. It's going to get done, but you could do it. Then he goes on to say this, and here's what I want to focus on. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Three things for you to be a unique expression of God in this time and place. Your uniqueness. Esther's position was queen. She was beautiful. God made her beautiful. And I'm guessing it was more than physical beauty. And she was able to, she was in a place with being uniquely Esther to have influence in that moment. And then she was also in a time, specifically at that time, she had opportunity. God had put her in a position in a moment and said, right now, you can do it. 
And clearly, she stepped out of her comfort zone, facing potential death. The other thing that she does that you cannot gloss over is this. She takes time to fast and pray. See, she's just not going to go about her own deal. She wants to make sure that she's doing what God is calling her to do. And so she uses her her uniqueness and her timing. She steps out of her comfort zone and she goes to God and figures out how she's going to do this. Well, I will ruin the ending on this one. What ends up happening is the king, the sign is if he's going to accept you, he would extend his scepter to you and you'd touch it and you were able to come into his presence or else he'd kill you. And she walks in and he extends his scepter and she tells him the story. A lot of stuff happens. In the end, Haman, with the master plan, he ends up, the king finds out the evil plot that he had made and actually to kill his own queen who was Jewish eliminate Mordecai the king actually has Haman hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai Mordecai becomes the second in command in Haman's place the Jews are saved all because Esther decided to be a unique expression of God in her time and place and there's a whole lot more into that story. If you get time, read the book of Esther. It's just a fascinating. It's like, it's like reading Shakespeare almost. It's just wonderful. Unless you hate reading Shakespeare, I guess. But <laughs> no. Anyway. The question for all of us to answer today is this. How can I be sure that I'm in the process, in in the discovery of being God's unique expression in this time and place? How can I I make sure I'm not being a stereotypical person? How can I make sure I'm not living with my limp that happens when I put myself into my, my being, my essence, into captivity? I think there are three things also for this. The first thing is this. If you want to be a unique expression of God in your time and place, the first thing you have to do is define your world. See, we all live in many worlds, right? Yet, are you married with kids? That's a world. How about your workplace? Are you living a stereotypical life in your workplace or are you changing the world? Are you being a unique expression of God there? How about with your family? Not your wife and kids, but your extended family. How about friends? So you have multiple worlds that you live in. The first thing you need to do is understand the world that God has placed you in. I'll ask you this too. Why are you here right now? Why are you sitting in these seats here at K2? Churches all over this valley. See, because if you're just here to just enjoy a good service, you are not being a unique expression of God in a time and place. There are opportunities where God puts in front of all of us every week where we, every single one of us, can be involved in shaping and changing this valley through K2. And I want to encourage you, if you're not involved in that process, you're missing the discovery of being who God desires for you to be. Second thing after you define your world, I think you need to know yourself. So Socrates, right? Know thyself. And on this, I just, before I get in there, I have a lot of thoughts. And, and this, I got to tell you, this, this value is really, this, this talk today is really hard for me. I had so many things. I felt like I threw out more stuff than I actually kept in the message. It's really hard. I think Dave goes through this all the time too. But um, for, for, the, for some reason, this one was really tough for me. But I want to pause. You need to know yourself. And the first thing, I want to just go back to something that happened with Esther. 
that when she knew she had to go to the king, the first place she went was to God. See, you can be a unique expression, but you might not be a unique expression of God. Uniqueness is good. Use your uniqueness, but the whole point is using your uniqueness to express God. And if you're not spending time seeking him, praying, uh, praying before God and, and, and reading his word and trying to understand who is God, how can you be his expression if you don't even know what God is like? I want to encourage you. Many of you haven't even taken that first step. I'd encourage you to take that first. Receive Christ in your life. Ask him in and then start pursuing what it means to be a follower of him. other practical things you can do, and I'm, I think most people like to find out about themselves, right? You guys like to find out stuff? Do you like people telling you things about yourself? Is this on? Hello? <laughs> Everyone does. And uh, I, I'm going to start with a real practical right here at this church. <laughs> One way to know yourself is to know what your spiritual gifts are. I'm going to ask you, you raise your hand. Well, actually, don't raise your hand. But how many of you guys know what your spiritual gifts are? Some people raise their hand anyway, Danielle. <laughs> Some of you do. But can I tell you something? If you don't want to be the extrovert sitting in a cubicle all day long, hating what you're doing, you need to know who you are. And one thing, one way for you to plug in here at K2 if you're calling this your church and be a changer, a difference maker, is to know what your spiritual gifts are. Do you have the gift of encouragement? Do you have the gift of teaching? How about compassion? There are so many opportunities for you to be involved in a place that's actually going to fill you up and help others. And that's what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts, I mean, just, just differentiate from just natural gifting. Spiritual gifts are gifts that you have that are used to help the church accomplish its goal. That's what a spiritual gift is. And I got to show you, Susie went to uh, the Christian bookstore and right here, and you can do most, almost everything I'm going to tell you is free online. But also this is the ministry gifts inventory. She bought it for $1.97. And you go through and you take this test and at the end it spits out what are your spiritual gifts. If you want to know, you're like, I don't know where I can plug in at K2 and you don't know your spiritual gifts, here's a great start. Find out what God created you to be doing in your church. Another thing, again, I love, I love self-discovery. I love to read a ton. And um, there's this book called Strengths Finders 2.0. And it's a $20, it's a $20 book. And you go and you buy this book. And what you do, it, I'll show you this part right here. That part right there is what you read. So if you don't even like reading, you can do it. And that explains what you're going to do. And then the inside, it gives you a code. And then you go online and you take this really quick test. And it spits out your top five strengths. And the premise is we spend the majority of our time working at the stuff we're not good at trying to fix it. And he's like, skip that. Find out what you're good at and do that. Great book. I highly recommend it. Strength Finders. Here's another one. Tamara Lowe, it's a book called Get Motivated. And she, what she does is she helps you understand the things that motivate you to do your best. It's, it's, uh, um, she, she has this thing called the motivational, motivational DNA. Who you are as a person, what motivates you. And you can go online here 
then take that test for free without the book. Another thing, uh, Susie and I did this about eight, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever. Uh, we took a Myers-Briggs personality profiler to understand who we were as people. How, what am I as a person? Am I an introvert? Am I an extrovert? Am I, you know, an intuitor? And, and, and anyway, we took this test and figured out, I have to tell you, I just want to tell you guys this. For your marriages, if you don't know who you are, A, it's going to be hard for you to B, explain to your spouse who you are. This was probably one of the best things that Susie and I did for our marriage because I began to understand that when I would say something like this to Susie, it meant this because she's different than me and vice versa. And our marriage has so benefited from understanding who I am and who she is. Other thing, five love languages is that class uh, last week. And every single person I'm talking to that went to that class, they're like, man, that was, I'm already seeing the benefits. I'm already seeing the benefits of being involved in that or spiritual pathways. Anyway, there are so many ways for you to plug in and understand who you are because until you understand who you are, doing what you're designed to do is going to be extremely difficult because you don't know. It's a crapshoot. Hopefully you land in the place that you're supposed to do. So to find your world, the second thing is to know yourself. And the third thing is this. Socrates, apply, or know thyself, Mike Rutt, apply thyself. Okay? Find out ways to continually be expressing the essential nature and character within you. Once you know what you like and what your desires are, which are God-given, start using them. Then, step out of your comfort zone. Don't wait for everything to come to you. Actively pursue using the desires and gifts you have, your uniqueness, to make a difference. It's not always easy to be a world changer. Maybe never. Then the third thing is, look for God's timing. And this one's really interesting to me. What I mean by that is this. You understand your world. You understand who you are. Ask yourself this. Why am I in this place right now? You ever find yourself scurrying through the day? You're so busy with the things you've got to get done and you're just kind of racing through all your chores and you never stop to figure out, what am I supposed to be doing right now? What does God have me in this moment for? You run into a conversation that feels like an interruption in your plans. How about this? Could that be the plan, maybe? So ask yourself, why are you in this place? Embrace who God has created you to be and start making a difference in the world you're in today. The discovery of being a unique expression of God in this time and place is an active process and it cannot stop or God stops expressing himself through you and may ask someone else to do the job you were created to do. Imagine if Martin Luther King or Einstein or Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela succumbed to the stereotypical lives, stopped the process of discovering their essential nature and character, and, acted, and never acted on their God-given desires to create change. This world would be a different place. Then imagine this. Imagine when you 
start being the unique expression? What if everyone in this building today, right here and now, knew who they were and was being the expression that God desired on a constant, ongoing, current basis? What would happen to this valley? What would happen to this place? What would happen to the relationships you were engaged in? I'm going to ask the band to come out and we're going to close off this morning. And I just want to tell you that for me, a key definition is this. Your success is never measured in comparison to what others do. That is not how you measure success. I mean, the Wemmicks did, right? Stars and dots. But success is measured by what you do compared to what God designed you for. Let me say it again. Success is not measured by what you do compared to others, but by what you do compared to what God has asked of you. So we're going we're to close out here this, this morning in, in a, a thought as I was just thinking about this this morning, we're going to take communion. And actually, uh, greeters, you guys can come and you can actually start uh, distributing that stuff. And, and um, the thought hit me as I was thinking through our communion time this morning. What if Jesus Christ came down and decided he didn't want to be the expression he was meant to be? It was tough. But he came with a sole purpose and his whole sole purpose was to provide the opportunity for us to live in full community with God, without stereotypical behaviors, without limps in our lives, and to know God fully. He came and he accomplished that goal. And here's what I want you to do. Just when you get your stuff, just, just take, keep it for just a minute. The band is going to go ahead and start playing here. and We're going to close out with just one song. and You can just wait till you have, they're going to bring the bread and then they're going to bring the juice as well. And I would ask you during this song to just take a minute and reflect on this closing song, which is, I'm going to love you with all that I am. I'm going to dive into knowing who God made me to be, and I'm going to love you, God, with all of me. I just want you to take just a minute and ask yourself, do I know who I am? Am I being all that God wants me to be? Is there stuff that I'm allowing into my life that's blocking me from being all I want to be? Are there things I need to confess? I want you to just, with yourself, take a moment, pray to God, and then when you get the juice and you get your bread, go ahead and just, before God, thank Him for the gift of His expression of being exactly who He was for us in this time and place. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we just thank you for giving us the gift of eternal life, giving us the gift of knowing you, and thank you for being all that you are. You love us so dearly that you came to this earth to die and give us an opportunity to live in in our fully intended state with complete communion with you. I pray that we would be grateful and thankful and that we would, res- we would respond by living such a life that 
brought glory to you and that we would be the unique expression. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for offering us the new life. And thank you for being who you are in completion. We love you and we ask this in your name. Amen.